Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Remember, that's what acting is. That's why acting jobs are called roles. Sean Penn won an Oscar for playing gay civil rights martyr Harvey Milk. At the time, it was considered a courageous act of solidarity for a straight male movie star to play a homosexual. Now it's the opposite. Eddie Redmayne played a transgender woman in The Danish Girl, but now calls that a mistake because many people don't have a chair at the table. Well, actually, in movies now, they do. And what does it have to do with you playing trans? Does it then work the other way? Can trans actors only play trans characters? Because that's not going to be a good deal for them. (laughs) And isn't the best acting always about making us feel our common humanity beyond separate identities? A black George Washington in Hamilton, of course. But... Ryan Gosling as Frederick Douglass? Yes, that would be problematic. Good morning. It's Tuesday, Ayn Rand Tuesday, August the 8th, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the serenity prayer and the patriotic song of the day, we will have Maria Bartiromo, Government Rights, My Take, Stuart Varney, The Rape of the Mind, No Free Lunch, Donald Trump, Fox News, Alex Epstein, and Ayn Rand's uh, book, Philosophy Who Needs It, Chapter 10. All that and more when I get back. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.
Thank you, thank you. Now there's no free lunch. 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. The most basic question is not what is best, but who shall decide what is best. Thomas Sowell. This is indeed the question. Defenders of free enterprise do not believe in a perfect administration under a market economy. Rather, we do not believe in the possibility of such. To the extent imperfect decision-making is accepted, we then seek to solve for who has the best chance of answering the question correctly, he with local knowledge or he without. He who will reap the consequences of his decision or he who will not. Better decisions that are imperfect are superior to worse ones that are also imperfect. And accountability where a decision is made is better than no accountability where a decision is also made. One simply must abandon belief in the omnipotent, disinterested third party, which no one explicitly believes in, but too many implicitly do. Once we have accepted the inevitability of imperfect decision-making, choosing who decides is the easy part. And that was There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. What are the true conservative cultural priorities? Bring back hierarchy. Bring back the admiration of intelligence, morality, and beauty. Bring back single-income households, integration, parenting, the primacy of existence, certainty of knowledge, and universal rights and wrongs. Bring back principled behavior, masculinity, and femininity. Bring back Adam 12, John F. Kennedy, the gold standard, pre-HMO medical care, and non-profit news. Bring back civil service, the term stupid question, arguments and fights, the cultural influence of the church and the Boy Scouts. Bring back the influence of social organizations such as the Lions Club and the Rotary Club. Bring back bowling. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Now a little bit of uh, Maria Bartiromo. In the Democrat Party about the reality of what's going on in our big cities, Leo. I mean, we had a bloody weekend in Chicago again. An eight-year-old girl shot and killed. She was playing outside her apartment building. 26 other shooting victims reported in that time, Leo. And so, again, she gets it wrong. It's not about shooting. We can't win the arguments about shooting. It has to be about crime. So she should have said that girl was killed as a victim of crime and that 27 other people were victims of crime. That's the point. And that's an argument we can win. If we continue to play the game by the Democrats' rules, we will never, ever win. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. So uh, on Stuart Varney, they were talking about a Florida judge uh, went ahead and um, uh, uh, well put a, the prosecution against Donald Trump uh, wanted. Uh, certain things. They wanted an out-of-state jury, which sounds bizarre. Why would you ask for an out-of-state jury? But anyway, so they asked for that, and the judge says, well, I don't know. Well, why do you need that? 
doesn't sound right. Then another, uh, they asked for something else, and the judge said, uh, turn them down flat. Oh, secrecy for the grand jury testimony. They wanted it sealed. And uh, the judge said no. And uh, so all of this reminds me of where all this is coming from is government rights. The, the Look at, at what the government's asking for in this particular case. And really what they're saying is we should have these things because we have the right to prosecute uh, Donald Trump. Where did that idea come from? Well, if this is all about insurrection, ultimately about insurrection, uh, then uh, that goes to the war on terrorism. See, we, we have the right to have a war on terrorism. We have the right to have a war on drugs. We have the right to have a war on poverty. And so um, when uh, we have the government comes to kick down your door because they say, um, you know, and you say, no, you can't do that because I have the right to uh, be free of illegal searches and seizures, then the government says, ho-ho, uh, we have the right to uh, do away with terrorism, to do with drugs, to do away with poverty, etc. So now you've set yourself up for who's going to decide whose rights are paramount. The courts. The courts are now going to have to decide um, whose rights are more important, the people's rights or the government's rights. And that's where we get into situations of what, whether the judge or justice is a Republican or a Democrat. If we had things the way they should be, which is that the only uh, rights uh, that are recognized by the courts are the rights of the people, and that the courts uh, understand that the government has no rights, then you, it doesn't matter. Because all you're doing is t you're looking, the judge is looking at the law, applying it to the particular case, and rendering the right judgment. But like I said, uh, we don't have that situation right now. It doesn't have to be this way. We can restore sanity to our justice system by remembering that the government has no rights. It has no right to war of any sort. It definitely doesn't have a right to a war on concepts. That's ridiculous. There is no such thing as a war on drugs. There's no such thing as a war on terrorism. It doesn't exist. It's a fiction. It's just another way for the government to assert in a rather clandestine way, a subconscious way, that it has rights. And once the American people understand and get their mind right and realize that the government has no rights, everything else will fall into place. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the rape of the mind. And in such a culture, how can we describe the citizen of totalitarian? Perhaps the simplest answer to this question lies in the statement that he is reduced to the mechanical precision of an insect-like state. He cannot develop any warm friendships, loyalties, or allegiances because they may be too dangerous for him. Today's friend may be, after all, tomorrow's enemy. Living in an atmosphere of constant suspicion not only of strangers, but even of his own family, he is afraid to express himself lest concentration camp or prison swallow him up. The citizens of Totalitaria do not really converse with one another. When they speak, they whisper, first looking furtively over their shoulders for the invisible spy. Their inner silence is in sharp contrast to the official verbal bombardment. The citizens of Totalitaria may make noise, utter polite banalities, 
or may repeat slogans to one another, but they say nothing. Existing literature reveals that leading authors, among them H.G. Wells, Huxley, and Orwell, grow more and more concerned about the ghastly future of the robotized man, trained as a machine on a standard of conformity. They translate for us the common fear of a mechanized civilization. In Totalitaria, the citizen no longer shows the real core of his mind. He no longer feels himself an I, an ego, a person. He's only the object of official barrage and mental coercion. Having no personality of his own, he has no individual conscience, no personal morality, no capacity to think clearly and honestly. He learns by rote. He learns thousands of indoctrinated facts and inhales dogma and slogans with every breath he draws. He becomes an obedient pedant, and pedantry makes people into something resembling pots filled with information instead of individuals with free growing personalities. Becoming wiser and freer implies selective forgetting and changes of mind. This we accept. This we leave behind. Alert adjustment requires a change of patterns, the capacity to be deconditioned, to undo and unlearn in order to become ripe for new patterns. The citizen of totalitaria has no chance for such learning through unlearning, for growth through individual experience. Official oversimplifications induce the captive audience into acceptance and indoctrination. Mass ecstasy and mass fanaticism are substituted for quiet individual thought and consideration. Hitler taught his people to march and to do battle, and at the end they did not know wherefore they marched and battled. People became herds, indoctrinated and obsessed herds, intoxicated first with enthusiasm and happy expectations, then with terror and panic. The individual personality cannot grow into totalitaria. The huge mass of citizens is tamed into personal and political somnambulism. It may be scientifically questionable to compare experiences gained from individual pathological states with social phenomena and to analyze the partial collapse of the ego under totalitarianism by analogy with actual cases of madness. But there is, in fact, much that is comparable between the strange reactions of the citizens of totalitaria and their culture as a whole, on the one hand, and the reactions of the introverted schizophrenic on the other. Even though the problem of schizophrenic behavior in individuals and groups is extremely complicated and cannot be fully handled within the scope of this book, the comparison can be helpful in our search for an understanding of the nature and effects of totalitarianism. And that was uh, The Final Surrender of the Robot Man from The Rape of the Mind. And uh, by Juiced Mirlo, M.D. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Stuart Varney's My Take. Good oil. It had been going up recently. It's holding at $80 per barrel as of right now. That's the markets on a Tuesday morning. And now this. At an Alabama fundraiser this week, Donald Trump said he needs one more indictment to close out this election. Okay, it was kind of a joke, but he made a good point. As the indictments spill out, his support has grown. He is crushing his GOP rivals, and in that now famous New York Times Siena poll, he's tied with Biden head-to-head, 43-43. All of this is happening just as the indictments hit. I think there's a strong belief that Trump is not being treated fairly and has not been treated fairly in the past. 
Russia, Russia, Russia. Impeachment over a phone call. Those are examples of vicious politics based on pure Trump hatred. And it continues. New York's radical DA, Alvin Bragg, indicted him on the flimsiest of grounds. He bent the law every which way to bring charges. Only the Trump haters thought that was fair. On the day after President Biden was caught in a lie, the day after, caught in a lie about Hunter's business dealings, Jack Smith laid criminal charges on him about the 2020 election. The timing is suspect. As Trump's lawyer said, this reeks of election interference. There's the silencing of the IRS agents pursuing Biden's corrupt family financing. How convenient. The Department of Justice roadblocking investigations that close, get close to Biden. There's a pattern here. Use the machinery of government, use the courts, use anything you've got to beat the Trump challenge. Of course, it only works if it's seen to be fair and legit. It is not seen as fair and legit by a growing number of people. And that is a real threat to our constitutional republic. And that was Stuart Varney's My Take. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Now, some Donald Trump. Crooked Joe Biden put me on trial during an election campaign that I'm winning by a lot, but forcing me nevertheless to spend time and money away from the campaign trail in order to fight bogus, made-up accusations and charges. That's what they're doing. I'm sorry, I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit because his attorney general charged me with something. And that was uh, Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, something from Chuck Callisto at Fox News. Those individuals were inside the Capitol, to which the SSA responded back. And I was privy to these conversations firsthand. Why can't you show us, why can't you just send us, give us access to the 11,000 hours of video of this that's available? Because there may be, may be, UCs, undercover officers, or CHS's confidential human for confidential human sources on those videos whose identity we need to protect. So, Mr. Allen, you got retaliated again. And that was uh, Chuck Callisto with uh, a uh, an informant to somebody that was uh, going in front of, or a whistleblower that was going in front of the uh, Congress and uh, talking about that there is. Um, Information that the FBI is withholding because it may contain the identities of undercover uh, FBI agents uh, that were in the crowd on January 6th. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Now a little bit of Alex Epstein. And one of my basic premises of my work, and one of the things I'm trying to, it it relates to something I'm trying to correct, is this association, like this negative association between energy 
and freedom on the one hand, and then a good environment on the other. Because actually, thought of properly, energy and freedom are what make our environment a good place to live. Like before we had mass energy use, which that means mass machine use, so people using machines to amplify and expand their otherwise very small productive abilities. Like it allows us to transform the earth to change things on a much greater scale if we have energy powering machines. Like before that, then the state of nature, so to speak, was really bad for human beings because I talk about in fossil future, it's naturally deficient So it doesn't have a lot of useful, available resources. And it's very dangerous. And so what human beings need to do to overcome that is we need to be productive. Like we need to produce new value that makes the naturally barely livable environment into an environment in which we can flourish like an abundant, safe, opportunity-filled world. And that's really what freedom and energy do. I mean, freedom is your way of discovering and implementing what are the most cost-effective ways to produce energy so that everyone can have it and they can have it on a large scale. So if you think about it from that perspective, energy makes our environment far better. And part of it is because the goal is to make it far better. Yes, you don't want to, you don't want to adversely change parts of your environment that you were happy with in the first place. So you don't want to add any more pollution to air than you need to. But by the way, our ancestors are burning wood. Like that was a lot worse for the air. (laughs) And that was uh, Alex Epstein. And uh, he had uh, the moral case for fossil fuels and fossil future. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Philosophy, Who Needs It? by Ayn Rand. 10. Causality versus Duty, 1974. One of the most destructive anti-concepts in the history of moral philosophy is the term duty. An anti-concept is an artificial, unnecessary, and rationally unusable term designed to replace and obliterate some legitimate concept. The term duty obliterates more than single concepts. It is a metaphysical and psychological killer. It negates all the essentials of a rational view of life and makes them inapplicable to man's actions. The legitimate concept nearest in meaning to the word duty is obligation. The two are often used interchangeably, but... There is a profound difference between them, which people sense, yet seldom identify. The Random House Dictionary of the English Language, unabridged edition, 1966, describes the difference as follows. Duty. Obligation. Refer to what one feels bound to do. Duty is what one performs, or avoids doing, in fulfillment of the permanent dictates of conscience, piety, right, or law, duty to one's country, one's duty to tell the truth, to raise children properly. An obligation is what one is bound to do to fulfill the dictates of usage, custom, or propriety, and to carry out a particular, specific, and often personal promise or agreement, financial or social obligations. From the same dictionary, dutiful, synonym, one, Respectful, docile, submissive. An older dictionary is somewhat more open about it. Duty, one. 
Conduct due to parents and superiors as shown in obedience or submission. Dutiful. 1. Performing or ready to perform the duties required by one who has the right to claim submission, obedience, or deference. Webster's International Dictionary, 2nd edition, 1944. The meaning of the term duty is the moral necessity to perform certain actions for no reason other than obedience to some higher authority, without regard to any personal goal, motive, desire, or interest. It is obvious that that anti-concept is a product of mysticism, not an abstraction derived from reality. In a mystic theory of ethics, duty stands for the notion that man must obey the dictates of a supernatural authority. Even though the anti-concept has been secularized and the authority of God's will has been ascribed to earthly entities, such as parents, country, state, mankind, etc., their alleged supremacy still rests on nothing but a mystic edict. Who in hell can have the right to claim that sort of submission or obedience? This is the only proper form and locality for the question. Because nothing and no one can have such a right or claim here on earth. The arch-advocate of duty is Immanuel Kant. He went so much farther than other theorists that they seem innocently benevolent by comparison. Duty, he holds, is the only standard of virtue. But virtue is not its own reward. If a reward is involved, it is no longer virtue. The only moral motivation, he holds, is devotion to duty for duty's sake. Only an action motivated exclusively by such devotion is a moral action, i.e., an action performed without any concern for inclination, desire, or self-interest. It is a duty to preserve one's life, and moreover, everyone has a direct inclination to do so. But for that reason, the often anxious care which most men take of it has no intrinsic worth, and the maxim of doing so has no moral import. They preserve their lives according to duty, but not from duty. But if adversities and hopeless sorrow completely take away the relish for life, if an unfortunate man, strong in soul, is indignant rather than despondent or dejected over his fate and wishes for death, and yet preserves his life without loving it, and from neither inclination nor fear but from duty, then his maxim has a moral import. Immanuel Kant, Foundations of the Metaphysics of Morals. And it is in this way, undoubtedly, that we should understand those passages of Scripture which command us to love our neighbor and even our enemy, for love as an inclination cannot be commanded, but beneficence from duty, when no inclination impels it, and when it is opposed by a natural and unconquerable aversion, is practical love, not pathological love. It resides in the will, and not in the propensities of feeling, in principles of action, and not in tender sympathy. And it alone can be commanded. Thus, the first proposition of morality is that to have moral worth, an action must be done from duty. If one were to accept it, the anti-concept duty destroys the concept of reality. An unaccountable, supernatural power takes precedence over facts and dictates one's actions regardless of context or consequences. Duty destroys reason. 
it supersedes one's knowledge and judgment, making the process of thinking and judgment irrelevant to one's actions. Duty destroys values. It demands that one betray or sacrifice one's highest values for the sake of an inexplicable command, and it transforms values into a threat to one's moral worth, since the experience of pleasure or desire casts doubt on the moral purity of one's motives. Duty destroys love. Who could want to be loved not from inclination but from duty? Duty destroys self-esteem. It leaves no self to be esteemed. If one accepts that nightmare in the name of morality, the infernal irony is that duty destroys morality. A deontological, duty-centered theory of ethics confines moral principles to a list of prescribed duties. And leaves the rest of man's life without any moral guidance, cutting morality off from any application to the actual problems and concerns of man's existence. Such matters as work, career, ambition, love, friendship, pleasure, happiness, values, in so far as they are not pursued as duties, are regarded by these theories as amoral, i.e., outside the province of morality. If so. Then, by what standard is a man to make his daily choices, or direct the course of his life? In a deontological theory, all personal desires are banished from the realm of morality. A personal desire has no moral significance, be it a desire to create or a desire to kill. For example, if a man is not supporting his life from duty, such a morality makes no distinction between supporting it by honest labor or by robbery. If a man wants to be honest, he deserves no moral credit. As Kant would put it, such honesty is praiseworthy, but without moral import. Only a vicious repressor who feels a profound desire to lie, cheat, and steal, but forces himself to act honestly for the sake of duty, would receive a recognition of moral worth from Kant and his ilk. This is the sort of theory that gives morality a bad name. A widespread fear and/or resentment of morality, the feeling that morality is an enemy, a musty realm of suffering and senseless boredom, is not the product of mystic, ascetic, or Christian codes as such, but a monument to the ugliest repository of hatred for life, man, and reason, the soul of Immanuel Kant. Kant's theories are, of course, mysticism of the lowest order, of the noumenal order. But he offered them in the name of reason. The primitive level of man's intellectual development is best demonstrated by the fact that he got away with it. If genius denotes extraordinary ability, then Kant may be called a genius in his capacity to sense, play on, and perpetuate human fears, irrationalities, and above all, ignorance. His influence rests not on philosophical but on psychological factors. His view of morality is propagated by men who have never heard of him. He merely gave them a formal academic status. A Kantian sense of duty is inculcated by parents whenever they declare that a child must do something because he must. A child brought up under the constant battering of causeless, arbitrary, contradictory, inexplicable musts loses or never acquires. 
the ability to grasp the distinction between realistic necessity and human whims. And spends his life abjectly, dutifully obeying the second and defying the first. In the full meaning of the term, he grows up without a clear grasp of reality. As an adult, such a man may reject all forms of mysticism, but his Kantian psycho-epistemology remains, unless he corrects it. He continues to regard any difficult or unpleasant task as some inexplicable imposition upon him, as a duty which he performs but resents. He believes that it is his duty to earn a living, that it is his duty to be moral, and in extreme cases, even that it is his duty to be rational. In reality, and in the objectivist ethics, there is no such thing as duty. There is only choice, and the full, clear recognition of a principle obscured by the notion of duty, the law of causality. The proper approach to ethics, the start from a metaphysically clean slate, untainted by any touch of Kantianism, can best be illustrated by the following story. In answer to a man who was telling her that she's got to do something or other, a wise old Negro woman said, Mister, there's nothing I've got to do except die. Life or death is man's only fundamental alternative. To live is his basic act of choice. If he chooses to live, a rational ethics will tell him what principles of action are required to implement his choice. If he does not choose to live... Nature will take its course. Reality confronts man with a great many musts, but all of them are conditional. The formula of realistic necessity is, you must if. And the if stands for man's choice. If you want to achieve a certain goal, you must eat if you want to survive. You must work if you want to eat. You must think if you want to work. You must look at reality if you want to think. If you want to know what to do. If you want to know what goals to choose. If you want to know how to achieve them. In order to make the choices required to achieve his goals, a man needs the constant, automatized awareness of the principle which the anti-concept duty has all but obliterated in his mind. The principle of causality. Specifically, of Aristotelian final causation, which in fact applies only to a conscious being, i.e., the process by which an end determines the means, i.e., the process of choosing a goal and taking the actions necessary to achieve it. In irrational ethics, it is causality, not duty, that serves as the guiding principle in considering, evaluating, and choosing one's actions particularly those necessary to achieve a long-range goal. Following this principle, a man does not act without knowing the purpose of his action. In choosing a goal, he considers the means required to achieve it. He weighs the value of the goal against the difficulties of the means and against the full hierarchical context of all his other values and goals. He does not demand the impossible of himself. And he does not decide too easily which things are impossible. He never drops the context of the knowledge available to him. 
and never evades reality. Realizing fully that his goal will not be granted to him by any power other than his own action. And should he evade, it is not some Kantian authority that he could be cheating, but himself. If he becomes discouraged by difficulties, he reminds himself of the goal that requires them, knowing that he is fully free to reconsider, to ask, is it worth it? And that no punishment is involved except the renunciation of the value he desires. One seldom gives up in such cases unless one finds that it is rationally necessary. In similar circumstances, a Kantian does not focus on his goal, but on his own moral character. His automatic reaction is guilt and fear. Fear of failing his duty. Fear of some weakness which duty forbids. Fear of proving himself morally unworthy. The value of his goal vanishes from his mind, drowned in a flood of self-doubt. He might drive himself on in this cheerless fashion for a while, but not for long. A Kantian seldom carries out or undertakes important goals. They are a threat to his self-esteem. This is one of the crucial psychological differences between the principle of duty and the principle of final causation. A disciple of causation looks outward. He is value-oriented and action-oriented, which means reality-oriented. A disciple of duty looks inward. He is self-centered, not in the rational, existential, but in the psychopathological sense of the term, i.e., concerned with a self cut off from reality. Self-centered, in this context, means self-doubt-centered. There are many other differences between the two principles. A disciple of causation is profoundly dedicated to his values, knowing that he is able to achieve them. He is incapable of desiring contradictions, of relying on a somehow, of rebelling against reality. He knows that in all such cases, it is not some Kantian authority that he would be defying or injuring, but himself, and that the penalty would be not some mystic brand of immorality, but the frustration of his own desires and the destruction of his values. A Kantian, or even a semi-Kantian, cannot permit himself to value anything profoundly, since an inexplicable duty may demand the sacrifice of his values at any moment, wiping out any long-range plan or struggle he might have undertaken to achieve them. In the absence of personal goals, any task, such as earning a living, becomes a senseless drudgery. But he regards it as a duty, and he regards compliance with the requirements of reality as a duty. Then, in blind rebellion against duty, it is reality that he begins to resent and ultimately to escape in search of some realm where wishes are granted automatically and ends are achieved without means. This is the subconscious process by which Kant makes recruits for mysticism. The notion of duty is intrinsically anti-causal. In its origin, a duty defies the principle of efficient causation, since it is causeless or supernatural in its effects. It defies the principle of final causation, since it must be performed regardless of consequences. This is the kind of irresponsibility that a disciple of causation would not permit himself. He does not act without considering, 
and accepting all the foreseeable consequences of his actions, knowing the causal efficacy of his actions, seeing himself as a causal agent, and never seeking to get away with contradictions, he develops a virtue killed by Kantianism, a sense of responsibility. Accepting no mystic duties or unchosen obligations, he is the man who honors scrupulously the obligations which he chooses. The obligation to keep one's promises is one of the most important elements in proper human relationships. The element that leads to mutual confidence and makes cooperation possible among men. Yet observe Kant's pernicious influence. In the dictionary description quoted earlier, personal obligation is thrown in almost as a contemptuous footnote. The source of duty is defined as the permanent dictates of conscience, piety, right, or law. The source of obligation as the dictates of usage, custom, or propriety. Then as an afterthought, and to carry out a particular specific and often personal promise or agreement. A personal promise or agreement is the only valid binding obligation, without which none of the others can or do stand. The acceptance of full responsibility for one's own choices and actions and their consequences is such a demanding moral discipline that many men seek to escape it by surrendering to what they believe is the easy, automatic, unthinking safety of the morality of duty. They learn better, often when it is too late. The discipline of causation faces life without inexplicable chains, unchosen burdens, impossible demands, or supernatural threats. His metaphysical attitude and guiding moral principle can best be summed up by an old Spanish proverb. God said, take what you want and pay for it. But to know one's own desires, their meaning, and their costs requires the highest human virtue, rationality. And that was Chapter 10 of Philosophy Who Needs It by Ayn Rand. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today, bidding adios to all of the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. And until next time, be honest, be smart, be beautiful, and remember that the left has no authority, no power, and they can't win. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.